I don't know if you've ever traveled with with someone and um, and at the end of that pilgrimage said, wow, that was great. We just were vibing as we traveled together and we were in sync in the way that, that, that was just like a, this incredible sort of experience of being guided into different experiences and, and, and it was wonderful. Or perhaps you've had an experience where you traveled with somebody, went on a pilgrim, was pilgrimage with somebody and you said, never again, I'm never doing that again. Um, we're just two completely different people. We value different things. We see time differently. We, I don't know if you've ever had either one of those experiences. But when you are on a pilgrimage, you learn a lot about the character of the person you're with. You also learn a lot about your own character. And we've been going through uh, the letter of uh, 1 John. And John has a couple of themes that keep repeating and cycling around. And, so, and, and one of the themes is to walk in the light. Another theme is to know God, to know Jesus. He keeps repeating these themes of knowing God and, and walking with God. And it's this image of a pilgrimage through life with God. He is, he is the guide, the one guiding us. And in his wisdom and his love and his grace, he's guiding us into flourishing. And that includes taking us places that, uh, you know, in our own hearts and minds that perhaps we'd rather not go. And calling us to things that we'd perhaps rather not do as we forsake our sin. And call things sin that previously we didn't want to acknowledge were sin. All of this is a way of going on a pilgrimage with someone who we, as we are learning more and more about God's character, which John says is light and in him is, there is no darkness. We learn things about our own character, namely that our, there are corners of our hearts full of darkness. And uh, divine inspiration uh, of the Bible, meaning that you know, God inspired, the Holy Spirit superintended the writing of Scripture. Divine inspiration does not mean mechanical dictation. And what I mean by that is that each letter has sort of flavor and emphasis and character to it because it was written by human beings, and the Bible never shies away from that. So as we're going through John's letter, there's, he has a style, and it's a, it's a spiral, and it's a cycle. And so we keep revisiting things on purpose— because repetition is a friend of learning. So there's going to be repetition over the next number of weeks because it is a friend of learning. As we consider the majesty of Christ, what it means to walk in the light, what does it mean to turn from darkness, what does it mean to know him and to have joined him, to, to go on this pilgrimage. So we're going to continue this morning in 1 John chapter 2, the first six verses. My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. This is God's word. So this morning we're going to unpack this section of verses the same way we did the first chapter. And we're going to cycle through familiar themes because John is doing this on purpose. Uh, the first thing we're going to look at is the problem of darkness. Secondly, the grace of our advocate. And thirdly, the life of love united to Christ. So first, the problem of darkness. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we spent a lot of time last week on it. We're going to spend most of our time today on the advocate. But we'll begin with the problem of darkness. 
The problem with darkness is, of course, you're bumping into things all the time because you can't see where you're going. And if you bump into them long enough, you just think that's the way that life is. It's full of pain in your kneecaps. And the problem with darkness is that we don't see what makes us cause, stumble. And really, John's issue with sin here, as he brings it up again, but in the first chapter, calling us to confess sin, he's not really that interested in just the outworkings of sin, the, the end result, the fruit, the thing you did this week. What he's really interested in is the cause of sin. Are you sinning? Are you sinning because you're walking in darkness? Or are you sinning as a person who is walking in light? Because all Christians sin. And if we are Christians who are walking in the light, we're still going to sin. But that's very different than if the cause for your sin is that you're walking in darkness. Because if you're walking in darkness, the odds of you even thinking that what you're doing is sin are not good. Because you're like, everything is fine. I'm the king, I'm on the throne of my life. And after all, why wouldn't God agree with all of my impulses and desires and appetites? So John is really concerned with the cause of the sin. Are you walking in light? Are you walking in darkness? Because you're going to relate to your sin very, very differently. You know, his goal in the letter, he said in verse 4 of chapter 1, my goal is that you will have joy that is complete. And here he says, now I'm writing this so that you don't sin. But again, if we consider the cyclical nature of his writing, the goal is a life of joy. The goal is walking, in, walking with God, new humanity, flourishing. And so the only way for that to be possible is that we don't just live in this continual sort of habitual sin. He's really saying there's two realms, the realm of light, the realm of darkness. There's two. And if you're in one of those two realms, then your way of thinking is going to be different. Your outlook on life is going to be different. The way in which you um, approach um, the quality of, of, of your life as it relates to you know, your ethics and wisdom and engaging in day-to-day -day activities at work and in the city, you're just going to have a completely different outlook on it uh, based upon whether you're walking in light or walking in darkness. There is a difference um, for John between the two because the one who is walking in light, there is a deep love and there is an ownership of their faith. The one walking in darkness, they're busy with church or they're busy with activity. But they don't really love Jesus, so they're not that invested in the life of what it means to walk in light, which is, again, as I said many times, not just the checklist of to-dos, but like this, this joy-filled desire uh, uh, and imitation. There's a difference between a person who rents a canoe every once in a while to go in the Grand River and someone who owns a canoe and at every opportunity goes to, you know, tries to get lost in Algonquin Park. Because the person who rents the canoe every once in a while is not invested. The person who owns the canoe and is constantly thinking about that next trip is fully invested. One loves it, one doesn't. If the person who rents the canoe once every six months or once every six years and jumps in the Grand River for a half hour says to you, I love canoeing. Oh my gosh, I love it. Selfie on the gram. Boom, boom, boom. Hashtag the outdoor lifestyle. You're just like, what? You're like, dude, I try to get lost in Algonquin Park. I love... This is what John is getting at. It the difference between walking in something, sort of occasionally having a casual relationship with God. This is the problem with darkness. This is the problem with sin. See, if we walk in light, we have this awareness of God, this conscious love of God, this consciousness of the grace of God, and we desire to reflect His image. If we're walking in darkness, what we really want is a God in our own image. So Christian, you know, as I said, all Christians sin, but confession of sin is actually a pathway into joy because we want to reflect His image. If you're walking in darkness, there is no confession because you're curating your own image.
So this is where this begins, the problem of sin. Let's move on to the grace of the advocate. The entire Bible is pointing forward to this advocate. It is impossible for me or any preacher to overemphasize the grace of the advocate. Because Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are all loaded with shadows and types and symbols and ceremonies pointing to the work of this advocate. The whole Bible is foreshadowing. The entire New Testament is is absorbed with marveling at the work of this advocate. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that led up to this point. He is the high priest. He is the sacrifice. He is greater than the temple. He has replaced the sacrificial system. Everything is anticipating the advocate. And so John uh, orients our gaze here so that we can wonder at it. And so he says something so provocative. He says, you'll see that in the text there, he, that he is the propitiation for our sins. Not only for ours only, but for the whole world. Not teaching universal salvation, which would be strange because, number one, this is authored to the children of God. Number two, we just realize that we're give, if we sin, then we have an advocate. Not speaking to the children of God. The whole entire Bible is divided up between those who trust God and those who don't. So when he says for the whole world, he's not trying to say, hey, in the end, God saves everybody. Doesn't matter how you live. Because that is not a God worth worshiping. The God who winks at injustice and atrocity and all the terrible things going on in the world and goes, in the end, it's all okay. What a disaster. Do not worship that God. That is a God of the modern construct. But what he is trying to say, by getting us to see that he is the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but for the whole world, is global sufficiency. That is the wonder of what Christ has done. That is how good it is. The difference between sufficiency and efficacy. Sufficient for the whole world, effective for everyone who will name the name of Jesus and turn to him. And he wants us to see that that is the magnitude of what is done. That is the magnitude of the humanity's problem. The problem is so deep, God had to come himself and die. But he so loved, he was willing to do it. Uh, The word advocate means one who represents and stands and defends us. And here's a question that I want us to really sink into this morning. Who is Jesus standing against? Who is he representing us to? Who who, Who are we being defended from? It's important to think about this because... It's quite popular, sadly, for a lot of people to have the image in their mind that Jesus is protecting us from this angry God who's on a hair trigger, just waiting to punish and destroy you. Back in the first century, there was a guy named Marcion. He's famous for being welcomed to the church and then being kicked out of the church a few years later, like three or four years later. He started a monster heresy, well, a number of heresies, But one of the heresies that's still going on today is the ogre in the Old Testament can't possibly be the father of Jesus in the New Testament. So we have to separate the Old and the New Testament because the God in the Old Testament is clearly an ogre. It's like mighty Jabba, we have displeased you and we have garnered your displeasure and you just get sucked into the rancor pit where you're just destroyed. The whole councils of the church were coming together to be like, this is absolutely false. You're misunderstanding the heart of God. So the, the, the text says, look at it. It says that our advocate is with the Father. I just want you to think about the word with for a second because it's critical. Jesus is not pleading with an angry God. 
Jesus is not pleading with an impersonal, holy force ever inclined to punish you. We have a Father who loves you, who sent the Son. The Father is ever inclined to welcome you. And this is why confession is the pathway to joy. This is why we must understand who this advocate is and who he is defending us against. Because God is not an angry father, arms crossed on the porch, itching to kick you out. God is the father who sprints off the porch and hugs and kisses the prodigals and welcomes them home. This is how Jesus describes his own father. And maybe you're saying, well, what about the wrath of God? What about the judgment of God? Yes, absolutely, there is wrath and judgment. But let me tell you something, church. You're never going to understand the biblical concept of wrath. And you're never going to understand the biblical concept of judgment if you don't understand God's tears. If you divorce God's tears from God's wrath, you don't have the God of the Bible. You have Zeus of Greek mythology. If you divorce God's tears from God's judgment, you don't have the God of the Old Testament. You've got the Zeus of Greek mythology. How did we get this advocate? The Father sent the advocate. What does it mean that The advocate is with the Father. It means he's with him. He's not occasionally barging into the courtroom of heaven once in in a while and say, please, please don't destroy them. I went to the cross, remember? And God's like, oh, I oughta. These are the images. I mean, there's entire books that are written with this tone. Please burn them if you own any. Like, what a disastrous divorce between how God reveals himself and how we have imposed human ideas upon him. When God shows up in Exodus... To reveal his holiness to Moses. He says, you can't look at my holiness. It'll kill you. Turn around. God reveals his, his, his backside to Moses. Because Moses can't look on the holiness in the face of God. And this is how God describes his holiness. The Lord, the Lord. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love and mercy or compassion. Depending on your translation. This is how he reveals himself. And so this is critical to understand because the answer to the question, who is the advocate standing against? He's standing against the prosecutor. He's he's not standing against the judge. He's with the judge. He was sent by the judge. He's standing against the prosecution. He's standing against the accuser, the enemy of your soul, the Satan in the Hebrew. Right? The, the, the one who's intent on destroying you. The one whispering in your ear saying, he won't welcome you back. Think about the things rolling around in your mind this week. How can you go to church? Think about the things that you did this week, indulged in this week. How can you go and worship? You're not welcome. You're not invited. The advocate sent by the Father is here for you and I so that when we feel least invited, is when we recognize we are most welcome. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what John wants to get the church to see. He's not soft on sin. I'm not being soft on sin. I'm trying to actually elevate our hatred for our sin because this is the motivation and the power. This is the bite. 
that will reanimate your heart and your mind into obedience. It is understand the glory of the advocate, the glory of God's grace and everything that has been done that actually motivates the Christian to hate our sin and to cast it off. This is what's going to cause your children, for those of you who have children, to motivate them to cast off their sin. Just as being blown away by the Savior. That's why the letter goes this way, because John knows the same way that Paul knew that maturity flows out of marveling. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Father is reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. The Father sent the advocate, the Father is with the advocate. The other reason this is so important is because where this is going to move is our love for each other, the people sitting around us. Remember I've said that the last um, couple weeks? You see, the significance of understanding the gravity of our own sin is so that we can walk side by side with with each other as, as the people sitting around you are struggling with sin. See, it reframes the way you do it. The church already has a full-time accuser. Doesn't need you. Right? So the way in which we come alongside one another, we don't just turn a blind eye to it and be like, everything's fine. But the way in which we approach one another is like, it's with love and grace and patience. Because, as you skip to the end of where this is heading, if we're going to walk just as he has walked, and we see this incredible love and patience and grace in Jesus as he... As he Um, wasn't soft on sin but he walked with those who were in sin and he was calling them out of their sin and it was all being done with just this this incredibly alluring and attractive love and grace this is why the apostle paul says in the book of romans it is the goodness of god that leads to repentance this is also significant the how john is framing the advocate because a strong theme which started in chapter 1, which is, we're going to get to you know, later again, is fellowship. Fellowship is sharing. He's like, oh, we have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with the Son. He keeps using the word fellowship. In the Greek, it is the word koinonia, the sharing of life together. And the reason why he keeps using that language is because it's a certain kind of life. It's a certain quality of life. And we, ha- we get to enjoy that fellowship. Not on the basis of our attempts at holiness, we get to enjoy that fellowship because of his advocacy. And it's because of his advocacy that we desire to live lives of holiness. It goes on to call Jesus by this glorious name, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I want us to think about this for a second. We're standing in this borrowed holiness. Jesus Christ is righteous by nature. You and I are called righteous by grace. While we're walking this earth, none of us will ever be righteous by nature. Therefore, there ought to be a humility in the way that we come to God in confession for our sin, the pathway of joy, and then walk along one another as, we're str- as our brothers and sisters are struggling with sin, even in the church, this pathway to joy. He is the righteous. Christ means anointed. It also means appointed. And as I said earlier, Jesus, the appointed one, was appointed by the judge. So what this gives us is our Father who loves us, appointed the Son, the advocate for us, The Son sent His Spirit, who now indwells us, renews us. The renewal of the heart and the mind, working its way out through our hands. This is why the confession of our sin, it's not knuckle-dragging. It's a spiritual discipline that leads us into joy. That's why there's never going to be a Sunday where I'm like, we're good, no confession. That's why there's never a Sunday where I'm just standing here going, maybe I had a bad attitude this week, I don't know. Because maturity doesn't look like becoming more and more oblivious to the ways you sin. Maturity means, oh, I'm pretty acutely aware. 
with the ways in which I sin. But again, it's not sorrow and knuckle-dragging and crying and being useless to, you know, to our neighbor because all we do is flop on the couch and cry about the terrible sinners we are. What it means is there's just this acute awareness and hatred for it and desire to live to his glory. And so because that is true, confession is this pathway into joy. And this is why meditation and prayer and scripture reflection, these are spiritual disciplines that you and I ought to have in our life, not to occupy our time, because they are pathways to joy. I want to draw your attention to the word propitiation. Propitiation means to satisfy, to render favorable. It means to turn away displeasure so that you can look on someone with pleasure. And this is so key because, you know, in the... In the Old Covenant, under the high priests, the, the propitiation for sin was always outside themselves. Whereas Jesus is the propitiation. And not only that, but their, the propitiation that they brought for sin was temporary. They would, they would give a sacrifice for the sin of the people, but it, it, it was temporal. They had to keep on doing it. What we enjoy before God is... Propitiation for sin that is not temporal. It is eternal. So that means God's disposition towards you of pleasure and favor and being satisfied and pleased and loving is eternal. And this is so key to our joy as Christians. You see, if you're walking in darkness, you'll hear this and you'll go, sweet, I'll just sin however I want because it doesn't matter. That's insanity. If you think that, the Bible says you're not saved. Because that is, a, that is just an un- illogical outworking to grace. But if you're walking in light, then you hear that God's, God's disposition towards you is pleasure and favor and love and grace. And that is the motivator to live to his glory. The father that would leap off the porch when you prove yourself a prodigal. Now, I know that some of this um, can sometimes strike the ear as hard to believe because, again, we impose our human ideas on God. Well, if you obey, then, then he has pleasure. And if you disobey, he has displeasure. Pleasure, displeasure. Because that's how human parents are, right? And after all, God is the Father. So you obey and he's in pleasure and displeasure. I understand that as you read through the scriptures, it is very clear. God's displeasure on sin. But what do you think God's displeasure on sin is? It's not, mm, tsk, tsk, tsk. The wages of sin is death. So what, what, do you think God's, what do you think God's disposition is towards the Christian? Here's why our human ideas of, the, of, of a human father don't work on God. Because human, human mothers and fathers are pleased when we obey and displeased when we don't obey because we live in the moment. This moment I'm pleased. Oh, you disobeyed me? This moment I'm displeased. Our Heavenly Father is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So, yes, God is with us in this moment, but our God transcends every moment. Yes, our God is with us right here, right now, in this time. And our God is eternal and outside time. Therefore, when you skip to the end of the book and you read how it all turns out, the answer to the question, what is God's disposition towards his children? The answer is pleasure. He is pleased with you. Yes, but Pastor Paul, I sin every week. So do I. But you want to know something? I'm walking in light. So I hate that I do. And I'm not repeatedly sinning in the same ways all the time. A slave to my sin. Because I'm not a slave to my sin. But yes, I sin. But my, I know my father's disposition towards me is forever pleasure. Because Jesus is the propitiation for my sin. 
And that propitiation is not temporal, that's vacillating up and down based on the kind of week that Paul Dunk has. It is eternal. It is settled. It is finished. Therefore, I will live to the glory of my Savior. When the glory of this grace blew Susan and my mind back in like 2009 or 2010, when this first gripped our hearts and minds, we didn't run off into wild sin. We planted a church. The outworkings of grace is not to run, run away in willful disobedience, but to live to the glory of our Savior. God's pleasure is not hang, hanging in the balance. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is the doctrine of assurance. And the reason why John is hammering the doctrine of assurance is because that's where the fuel is for obedience. Erase the assurance. And that's going to be a long ride on the pain train trying to walk in obedience. But from the glorious revelation of assurance, that is what fuels obedience. Jesus is not simply the high priest that gives you a clean slate says, try again. He gives us his slate, his perfect righteous record. This is why, like the psalmist, we can say, not who cares about your law, but oh, how I love your law. And the reason why we can say, oh, how I love God's law is not because we have a religious, you know, sort of affinity for precepts. We love a person. Which leads to the final thing as I close. The life of love united to Christ. You know, this fellowship with Christ, it's not mechanical. It's like this, it's this beauty, it's beauty. The life of the Christian, it's a life of, of freedom and beauty and joy. And this is what the apostle wants us to, to, to enjoy. So that whether the world is on fire or melting or crashing to the ground, there's a buoyancy in the soul and that is to live your best life now. So it's not mechanical. You know, a, mus- a musician, great musicians can take a piece of music and, and break a whole symphony down into which instrument is playing which part. And, but if you just get lost in analyzing the parts, you miss the beauty of the symphony. And so the apostle is inviting us to examine our hearts and to live in confession and humility of our sin, live to the glory of our Savior, walk in the light so that our lives are therefore then this symphony of joy uh, and of love for neighbor and mission in the world. And that's why he uses this language of this is how we know that we know him. He's by obeying his commands. But it's not like, hey, if you love me, you'll prove it by doing the dishes. That's not when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. It's not like go and do this thing and prove it. He's saying this is the natural byproduct of love. This is what it looks like. That's why John says, if you don't, you're a liar. John doesn't use justification, sanctification language like Paul does, but that's what this is. John's like, if your life looks like emulating Jesus, then you're telling the truth. And if it doesn't, you're a liar. And the solution isn't to up your good works because they'll save you. That's not the solution. The solution is to fall in love with the, with the advocate. The relationship looks like union. It's like a branch and a vine. In, in John's gospel, he uses that, uh, or, or sorry, Jesus gives us the teaching of the branch and the vine. That the branch inevitably resembles the vine. This is why we desire to walk in the light. The person who is walking in the light uh, will always struggle with sin. The person who is walking in darkness is busy at church, but they have no struggle with sin because they don't recognize their sin. So to borrow from Charles Spurgeon, he would say it this way, sin might enter our hearts, it might fight for dominion, but it'll never sit on the throne. 
Love always manifests by taking on the likeness of the object that it desires. So may our love for Jesus manifest in us as we take on the likeness of him as he is the object of our desire. Let's pray.